My name is Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. I have a background, I've done a lot of music. I play the guitar and write songs, and so some people know me through my scripture songs and different things that I've done with that. When I was early on in that music part of my life, I lost the name Schwerzer because people couldn't say it. You know, they'd get up to introduce me and they'd say, and now we'll hear from Jennifer Jill She's from, you know, or whatever. And they just couldn't get the word out of their mouth. So I decided to lose that and I started to be Jennifer Jill. But then I started to write books and get more serious. And I, I finally grew up, I guess, and figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I went back to school and got a degree and wrote some serious books and decided I should go back to my real name, Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. So let me hear you say it. Schwerzer. Two syllables, Schwer. Kind of like the sound that a blender makes, okay? Schwer. And you all know blenders because you're vegans, right? Many of you are. So Schwer and then Zer. Simple. Should I tell you this? My first name means white one, and Schwerzer means painted black. <laughs> but actually, I'm married to a wonderful man he, for 33 years. We have two daughters. They're grown at this point, 24 and 26. We currently live in Philadelphia. You guys mind if I take my boots off? I, I can't speak in shoes, and I, think, I understand there's research that the brain works better when you're wearing bare feet. So I'm, you know, a little quantitative study, or qualitative study, I should say, walking around proving it, because I just feel, when I get up to speak, I just feel compelled to take my shoes off. I figure maybe I'm on holy ground or something. I don't know exactly what's going on. But um, anyway, so I have two young adult daughters, and we live in Philadelphia, and I love Philadelphia. Moved there in 2001, and it's a beautiful city. You can be in the midst of this urban area, and then suddenly you're in the country. There's a beautiful park called Fairmount Park that cuts right through the center of the city. In fact, you can ride a bike from the suburbs straight to the art center downtown. It's, it's just a phenomenal park. And I love Philadelphia. I've really enjoyed being there over the last 10 years. Great ethnic mix, great culture, the oldest city in the US, and a lot of natural beauty all around. So I live there, and I work with a local church doing evangelism, surprise. We have the most exciting thing that's kind of making my heart beat these days is a church plant that we have with young people where my pastor, Pastor, Ter pastor Tara Vincross, has started a canvassing program in the summer called Pennsylvania Youth Challenge. We have 30 strong canvassers come for the last, I think we're going on our fourth year, and Collectively, over last summer, we reached, I believe it was 75,000 homes by going door to door. So there are great things happening in Philadelphia. We decided to take that young energy and start a church plant. And so we have an organization called Reach Philadelphia, which don't ask me, all those letters have significance, but I don't remember what they're all standing for. But it's one of those acronyms. But Reach Philadelphia is obviously about surprise, reaching Philadelphia. We have eight interns that live in two houses, housing that was donated. One of them donated through my nonprofit ministry. And they live in those homes, and they do either part-time or full-time evangelism for Philadelphia. And they're doing community outreach. They're doing a block party this weekend. Wish I could be there. They wanted me to make popcorn for it. Uh, they, are, they are doing canvassing, they're doing evangelistic series in their homes with 
doctrinal teaching, they're doing Bible studies. There's a kid that happens to have one of those big, loud proclamation voices. You know how some people just have a lot of vocal volume? And he does bus and subway preaching. I just went out with him last week, and, and he's just a ball of energy, and he just, he just bursts out with, uh, I'm here in the name of the Most High God, and he starts in on evangelism. He's a street preacher. So we have a lot of really encouraging and, and exciting stuff going on among the young people. And as you can say, that, see, that's what animates me these days. I, I guess, you know, I like hanging out with the young people because I'm not so young anymore. But by the way, did you know that there's research that shows that hanging out with young people and interfacing with young people and being in relationship and dialogue with younger people actually helps to stave off aging of the brain and prevent dementia? So befriend a young person, and you know, I'm kind of rattling on here, but let me tell you this, that there's a certain level of self-consciousness when you're with people that, that look perfect and young and in the flush of youth and are so energetic and you're kind of getting old and starting to break down. It is a little self-consciousness factor and you kind of wonder if they'll like you and want to be around you. What I have found is the exact opposite, that they love it when older people just join with them in friendship and support them and encourage them, they will wrap their hearts and their arms around you and you will be most welcome in their lives has been my experience. So anyway, that's what I'm doing these days in Philadelphia and really enjoying it. The Lord is blessing. Now I know this is a medical type convention, but do we pray before meetings here? It's okay. Okay, let's, let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I have prepared a talk for these dear folk and I feel inadequate to be speaking to people that have more degree than I have and probably more experience than I have in many respects. But I hope that in spite of me, that you will move me aside, Lord, and that you will be able to speak through me. I'm just a channel, just a vessel. I pray that you'll be able to speak through me to their hearts and that they would walk away today with something that will be useful in their practices, in their lives, in their outreach, that will touch some soul that maybe someone will be in heaven that wouldn't have been there otherwise. That's why we do all these things for you, Jesus. We ask you to bless them. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so the title of my talk is Cutting Edge Counseling, Clinical Experience in the Healing Power of the Gospel. Now, I'm a very cooperative and compliant person. And so I was given three criterion that I was to meet in this discussion. First of all, I was to discuss the frequency in which a psychosocial issue underlies visits to primary care. So I'm entitling that section of the presentation, part one, presenting with a heart problem. People come to you as primary care physicians or other kinds of physicians with a heart issue. They come with spiritual issues and psychological issues. How do we handle that? best. The second part is to explain the relationship between medications and counseling in resolving psychosocial problems. So I have entitled that section, The Bottle, The Chair, or Both. And the third part, they asked me to review how understanding and using spiritual resources can aid in the recovery from illness beyond the physical. So understanding how these spiritual things can aid people in obtaining mental health, and so I've called that talk, that section of the talk, biopsychosocial spiritual, because as you know, the biopsychosocial model is the one that we generally use in mental health, and I think physical health care as well. I'm expanding that to include the spiritual aspect of human nature, because you and I know that that is a very real aspect 
of human nature. In fact, let me show you a little diagram of what I believe the Bible presents as the tripartite nature of humanity. Body means in Greek, soma, that which casts a shadow. Something has to be physical to cast a shadow. So the body is a physical part of us. Soul is suke, and that's the seat of thoughts and feelings. And by the way, psychology is not a swear word. <laughs> Does that come as a surprise? I wrote a book, it's on the table back there, it's called 13 Weeks to Peace. I hate that title. <laughs> I love Pacific Press, but I don't like the title they gave it. I, like I said, I'm a very compliant person and I acquiesced on the title issue, but let me tell you what happened. I had a great title for the book. The book was about biblical psychology, so I called it Jesus Psychology. I thought that was a great title, it said it all, it said it succinctly, we're in a soundbite age here. I just love the title. I went to them and I said, here's my manuscript. They said, we like the manuscript. I said, here's my title. They said, you can't use that title. And I'll give you the reason. And they know what they're talking about. They know the market. They said, if you put the word psychology on the cover of that book, it'll never move off the shelves. Now, let me just clarify that psychology is not a swear word. It hits a hot button in Adventist because we're afraid of secular psychology, but sometimes I think what we're really afraid of is our own psychology, like our emotions and things. You know, we feel much safer with things you can kind of put in a box or quantify. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah. So I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to judge Adventists, but, I, but I, they said, and I, I believe them to be telling me the truth, that the word psychology is a hot button in Adventism that would cause people to veer away from purchasing a product. Okay, so I acquiesced. But the word psyche is from the Greek suke, and it simply means the immaterial part of man. And ology means what? The study of. So psychology is the study of the immaterial part of man, the thoughts and feelings. Does the Bible have anything to say about the thoughts and feelings of human beings? The Bible certainly has volumes to say about that. So the Bible, my friends, is a great psychology book, among other things. No, it is not an exhaustive manual on the diagnosis and treatment of mental health disorders. But it is a psychology book in principle. And so we should not be afraid of psychology. And in fact, even in my study of secular psychology, I went through a secular university for my graduate degree. And at the end of it, I felt like Paul. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. People say, well, you'll get wooed in, sucked in. These secular theories are so seductive. You know what? They don't hold a candle to what the Lord has given us in his word. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't saying that because he was bragging about how brave he was. He was saying, there's no reason to be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, I'm not ashamed of this. It's great. This is the best thing around. And I came out of my graduate studies with that conviction. I went in with that conviction, and I came out with that conviction. The Bible's a great psychology book, and I'm not ashamed of it. Okay, so that was just a little digression. But the third part of human nature, tripartite nature, is the spirit, and that's in Greek, pneuma, and it means the efficient source of life. There is a lot of interaction in the Bible between, or sort of interfacing between these two terms. They are not, it's impossible to be dogmatic about what is the soul versus what is the spirit. But for the sake of, of understanding, I'm just giving you um, this tripartite model. 
Of course, we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, let's read it together down at the bottom here. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you an idea of the intimate relationship between body, soul, and spirit. There are certain conditions that involve the mind affecting the body. One is called conversion disorder. It is, quote, a mental disorder whose central feature is the appearance of symptoms affecting the patient's senses or voluntary movements that suggest a neurological or general medical disease or condition. So because of some kind of psychological episode in that individual's life, they begin to have physical movements or even symptoms that are unexplainable medically. The primary cause of conversion disorder is a purportedly uh, is purportedly a traumatic event or stressful situation that leads the patient to develop bodily symptoms. For instance, a study of 34 children who developed pseudo-seizures showed that 32% of the children had a history of depression or sexual abuse. Isn't that interesting? 32% of them. And 44% had recently experienced a parental divorce, death, or violent quarrel. But familial studies have also shown that conversion symptoms in first-degree female relatives are up to 14 times greater than those in the general population. So there's apparently a genetic component as well. One team of surgeons reported a case of a person who went into a psychogenic coma following a throat operation. The surgeons found that she had been repeatedly raped as a child by her father who stifled her cries by smothering her with a pillow. So you can see how that throat operation, the anesthesia, and that feeling of being stifled would summon up those memories. One American woman who quit her job because of on-job bullying was unable to work for several months. Uh, adult males sometimes develop conversion disorder during military basic training, which can be very, very brutal, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Interestingly enough, most conversion symptoms afflict the left half of the body. And so researchers have, have hypothesized that it involves a dysfunction in the right amygdala and parietal lobe circuits. Uh, brain damage in these areas often causes conversion symptoms and body image distortions. Some studies suggest that changes in these areas could be caused by traumatic events which result in changes in body image perception and behavior. So often human behavior and, and presenting issues for both you and me as a counselor involve a confluence of a number of different factors and diagnosis can be very, very challenging on that score. Okay, so just to give you more idea of how intimately the body and the mind are connected, these are some disorders that can come as a result of physical conditions that present as psychological symptoms. There's one called hemochromatosis, and it's a genetic disorder that causes iron accumulation in the body. How many of you have heard of that? Okay, of course you have. People of Western Europe descent with ancestors from Ireland, Wales, Scotland, or Great Britain have a 20 to 40% greater probability of carrying a gene, uh, or a 20 to 40% probability of carrying the gene. According to CDC, type 1 hemochromatosis is the most common genetic disease in the United States. Well, this is the point, is that this disorder can cause sexual dysfunction in a number of men in particular, and common symptoms include fatigue, aches and pains, disorientation, confusion, and memory problems. So there is an intimate relationship between the body and the mind, amen? and it can be a bear to try to diagnose, to sort it all out, figure out what's happening. I would bite off at least a piece of my finger and eat it in exchange for a doctor who would be willing to do a full workup
of some of my clients to try to find out if there are any physical problems, these types of diseases or nutritional problems or chemical exposure that are contributing to their mental health symptoms. I would do anything for someone that would do that for a reasonable cost. Any volunteers? Okay, good to know. <laughs> I'm telling you, because I have some that I just can't seem to help. Read this with me for mind, character, and personality. Satan is the originator of disease, and the physician is warring against his work and power. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. So again, that intimate relationship between body and mind, and notice that she calls it the physician who is warring against Satan's work and power. In her day, the doctor treated the what? The whole, whole person, much more so than today. We're much more compartmentalized today in terms of treatment. If someone is having a psychological problem, they are referred to a counselor, psychologist, or psychiatrist for treatment. But in her day, they took into account physical or, or psychological aspects of that person's condition. And so you and I, working for people's health, and either directly or indirectly working for their mental health are warring against a very powerful foe. Do you ever feel that way? How many of you that are in medical practice or in medicine have felt like you're warring against the devil himself? All right, the first section, presenting with a heart problem. We're gonna talk about how psychosocial issues underlie visits to primary care. Let's look at some research. I'm not going to mention the people that did the research. You have the name in front of you. I will just read the quotes, but if you need more information later, don't hesitate to approach me. An estimated 15 to 30% of all primary care consultations are for medically unexplained symptoms. Medically unexplained symptoms. The number of medic, this is from another study, it says the number of medically unexplained symptoms over a person's lifetime correlates linearly with the number of depressive and anxiety orders, disorders experienced. So in other words, people with depression and anxiety tend to present in the primary care office with physical symptoms that are medically unexplainable, okay? Here's a little diagram of how that works. Here we have medically unexplained symptoms, and when those tend to be high, anxiety and depression tend to be high. Okay, you got that point. Let's go to the next point. Let's talk about just one mental health presentation or diagnosis, and that's anxiety disorders. Anxiety disorders affect about 10% of primary care patients. Lifetime prevalence for anxiety disorders, it is the greatest cluster of mental health diagnoses. You have depression here, and you have all the anxiety disorders, which include social phobia, generalized anxiety disorder, specific phobia, PTSD, OCD, and all the others. That is the biggest clump of mental health diagnoses. That has the highest, as a group, the highest prevalence rate between 13.9 and 24.9%, or roughly around 18%. Patients with unrecognized anxiety disorders tend to be high users of general medical care. So you're gonna get a lot of anxious, depressed people in your office, and here's another factor, and that is that they seldom seek psychiatric care so for whatever reason, they're coming to you instead of coming to me. But they still have a mental health diagnosis. All right, let's talk for a moment about mental health care from the primary care physician. 80% of your patients have mental health issues. 
45% of patients who receive mental health care receive it from a primary care physician. I can't tell you how many of my clients have come to me on multiple, multiple medications, and we're gonna be talking about medications in a moment, but on many different medications. And what happened was they went to their primary care doctor, they had 10 minutes with him. They said, this is what's happening. I'm up in the middle of the night and I can't focus. And he gave them a script. Then they had side effects from that script because I don't know if you noticed, but prescription medications tend to produce side effects. And sometimes all they have is side effects, you know? So they take that medication, they have some side effects, they go back to the doctor and say, well, now I can't sleep at all. And so he gives them what? Another script. I had a client come to me. She was on like five different psychotropic medications. That's what happened. She kept medicating the side effects. And she ended up on, I think it was four or five things. And we would talk in counseling. And I'd say, so tell me where you're from. And she'd wait about three seconds and say, Yugoslavia. You know, it was really noticeable. She was out of it. One day, she got up in the morning and said, I'm getting off these meds. And over the next two months, she withdrew. And it was excruciating for her. But my point is that she ended up on that many medications because she went to a PCP for a mental health issue. And they weren't set up to really deal with the underlying problem. So we need to work together. I don't want to get to the punchline too fast, but we need to work together. So um, praise God we can do that to treat the whole person. But many of the people that come to you are going to have mental health issues, and you're going to be tempted to give them a drug because the drugs work so well, and they work so quickly, and they work fairly reliably. But really, if all they're doing is getting medicated, you're, you're kind of depriving them of an opportunity to learn life skills that chances are they've missed out on. So think about that. And I know you guys are all very responsible people. Let's read this together. This is from Councils on Health. But few realize the power that the mind has over the body. A great deal of the sickness which afflicts humanity has its origin in the mind and can only be cured by restoring the mind to health. There are very many more than we might imagine who are sick mentally. Heart sickness makes many dyspeptics for mental trouble has a paralyzing influence upon the digestive organs. Define dyspeptics for me. This is an outdated term. Would somebody care to take a stab at that? Go ahead. Upset stomach. Okay, and would that include you know, IBS and it would include heartburn and, and all forms of upset stomach? Okay, so anything that involves a digestive system, often these things are caused by some kind of trouble in that person's mental life. Let's read this as well together. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. How much? What would we say today? We'd say 90 what? Percent of the diseases have their foundation here. Now, does that mean that 90% of the diseases are imaginary? No, it means that they began in the mind. It didn't mean they stayed in the mind. So we need to be careful with that info and not tell people, you know, you say you're having these symptoms, but nine out of 10 chances, it's in your mind. You're gonna lose your life at a very early age. So let's, um, let's get that right and realize their foundation is there, but as that mental illness issue unfolds itself, it turns into physical symptoms. I've seen it over and over. Starting with perhaps, perhaps some living home trouble is like a canker eating to the very soul and weakening the life forces. Remorse for sin sometimes undermines the constitution and unbalances the mind. 
There are erroneous doctrines also as that of an eternally burning hell and the endless torment of the wicked that by giving exaggerated and distorted views of the character of God have produced the same result upon sensitive minds. I have a firsthand experience with this, was having a Bible study with a group of Presbyterians. I'm from Philadelphia and many of the white Christians in Philadelphia are Presbyterian. There's a good sized sector. There's a university right down the road from me, Westminster Theological Seminary, have you heard of that? Very, very conservative, high view of scripture, very good seminary in many respects. But they believe, like many Presbyterians, that God creates some people to be lost. That's the whole belief of predestination. Determinism is what we call it in theology. It embraces this idea in some cases that God creates some people to be lost and they have no choice in the matter. But not only does he create some people to be lost, but coupled with that is the teaching that hell is what? Just a, a punishment and then annihilation? Or hell is eternal? Coupled with that teaching is eternal hell. So put those two things together, do the math there. How does that make God look? That's horrendous. God creates some people just to torture them for eternity? Okay, so this is what happened. We're in a Bible study. And the Bible study, the point of the Bible study, this is before my wonderful pastor came along and mobilized my local church into evangelism. My husband and I were desperate to do evangelism of some kind, and so we ended up joining a Presbyterian group that wanted to do evangelism. We thought it was better than nothing, you know. Went to this study, and we were talking about how to do evangelism. Now, I don't understand why people who believe God makes people's minds up for them would even want to do evangelism, but that's a different discussion. They wanted to, thank God. We're in that Bible study. A woman in the Bible study became noticeably agitated week by week and started to pull back, and you could just tell she wasn't comfortable. At one point, she kind of burst out in the middle of a study and said, look, you know, we're talking about evangelism here, but..." I don't even know if I want to follow God, much less get other people to follow him. Because I just can't imagine following a God who would create some people just to torture them for eternity. And she goes into this rant and she says, you know, every time I fry a hamburger, obviously she went a vegetarian, I, I think about that. And every time I boil water for coffee, I think about hell and God burning people for eternity. And I just, I just don't know if I want to follow a God like that, much less get other people to follow him. Amen. And it was silent. Now, you guys are all saying amen, but let me assure you, the people at this Bible study were not saying amen. You know? So they go, oh, okay. And the leader of the study said, well, we'll pray for you. Can you believe that? So, you know, I was trying to be my compliant, submissive self, and instead of, like, getting in a knockdown, drag-out theological argument with him right then and there, I scheduled an appointment with the woman at a different time. And I shared from the scripture an alternative view to predestination and an alternative view to the torture of hell for eternity. And she was very blessed by that. So thank God that I had an opportunity, but I could see her you know, following in that train. Who knows, she might have become fully psychotic if I hadn't, the Lord hadn't used me to correct that misconception. But I could see that her nervous system was literally agitated thinking about that particular horrendous um, doctrine from hell. Let's read this together. This is, oh no, this isn't a spirit of prophecy quote. I'll let you rest during the uh, medical quotes, but you have to read during the spirit of prophecy quotes. Um, Longitudinal relationships between residents and patients may not be sufficient to promote the discussion, disclosure, and detection of psychosocial issues. So in other words, 
doctors that have even a long-term relationship with their patients may not be any better for the long-term relationship at getting to these mental health diagnoses with their patients or even talking about them and even talking effectively enough about it to be able to refer them to a mental health provider. Just because you've known them for a long time doesn't mean you're going to get to the heart of the issue. Rather, training in communication skills may help residents achieve the potential and goals of longitudinal care. So potential uh, for, I'm sorry, um, communication skills. Let me just give you a nutshell of how to get people to talk to you. Best thing I know. Say back to them what you heard them say. It's called mirroring or reflective listening. They say something to you and you say, so did I hear this right? You, blah, 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 blah. So they say to you, yeah, you know, I've not been sleeping very well ever since my mom died. You say, so let me get this right. You're, you're saying you're have, having trouble sleeping and your mother passed away some time ago? Yeah. How long ago was that? Uh, three years ago. Okay, so you've been having trouble sleeping for three years. Do you see how the whole dialogue just opened up because I reflected back to them what I heard them say? I don't know a better way of getting people to open up than to reflect back to them because Asking questions can feel like interrogation. It can be too confrontational. But reflecting back tends to draw them out. So that's one little communication skill that you guys could develop with your patients. Um, I'm going to skip through these because I do have to be done sometime before 2013. So let me just go quickly through this little history of primary care. We all know the model of the country doc. How many of you are? going through the countryside with your little black bag and stopping at people's homes and finding out what they need treated. Okay, I don't see, oh, no, I don't see any hands. Okay, so things have changed radically. Immunization, surgery, pharmacological interventions uh, ameliorated certain diseases. And as a result, there is less focus on the patient as the whole person. And there's been an eventual shift to the hospital and the office. Diseases prevalent today are more lifestyle related. So my point is that um, we can get back to the benefits of the country doc without the risks through what I'm calling collaborative care, working together as a team with mental health professionals and regular doctors and physicians and working together as a team for the best outcome for the client. So I hope that gave you some food for thought. Second section of my talk here is entitled The Bottle, The Chair, or Both, How Do Medications and Counseling Relate in Resolving Psychosocial Problems? Let me talk for just a moment about inappropriate prescribing. The use of psychotropic drugs by adult Americans increased 22% from 2001 to 2010. One in five adults now taking a psychotropic, is now taking a psychotropic medication. In 2010, Americans spent 16 billion on antipsychotics, 11 billion on antidepressants, and 7 billion for drugs to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Let me tell you a little story. My dear brother Scott, he's about three years younger than me, bit of a wild man, let's just say it that way. He worked for corporate America for a while, but went through kind of a bad experience and ended up leaving civilized society and moving to Mexico and lived pretty far off the grid, kind of a fun in the sun lifestyle, let's just say it that way. And he was able to save enough money and he could eke out a living just by using his savings. And he was enjoying himself scuba diving and so forth and finding all sorts of pretty little Mexican girlfriends. Well, 
Scott got into his 50s, and he was experiencing what we call a midlife what? Crisis. And Scott had a girlfriend half his age. Now, he decided he would run the Ironman. The Ironman is a very, very grueling triathlon that only the gr true grit even attempt. So he was training for the Ironman, and he had this little girlfriend, and he overheard a man say to the girl in Spanish, are you still dating that old man? Now, he really did look old because the training for the Ironman is very grueling, and typically you lose a lot of weight, so his wrinkles were showing up, and his hair was looking kind of wild and raggedy. He heard that comment about old man, and he said, I'm going to beat this age thing. And he decided he would find the fountain of youth. He found it in the form of steroids. But he didn't just take anabolic steroids. He took anabolic steroids, like he way overdosed on them. He got through the Iron Man, didn't lose a lot of weight, looked great, did very well, considering his age. And it was the first time he did it. Everybody was proud of him. He went off the steroids, and he crashed. Now, my brother is not inclined to depression, but he crashed so hard that he was thinking about taking his own life. And this was definitely a first for him. He was out of his mind, just, just Nothing could get him you know, back up to snuff. What happens is there's a, almost a testicular atrophy that occurs with anabolic steroids. The body thinks, well, that's testosterone, so it stops making it. And some people can get into full-blown testicular atrophy. He had what I would call, he, he gave me the details on it, which I will not give you, but he had what I would call a mild form of it to where he just didn't have testosterone. So he basically turned into a woman, but a very frightened woman. He was terrified of everything. Very, very severe anxiety issues. Went to a doctor down in Mexico. Doctor gave him a great big fat bottle of, guess what? Benzodiazepines. I think it was Xanax or one of those. Tell me about benzodiazepines. Do you like those drugs, you people? What do you think of those? Aren't they a little bit on the addictive side? Doctor gave him a big fat bottle, and guess what? He ended up addicted to benzodiazepines. Then he figured out that he needed to withdraw from that and that that was causing him some problems. Then he started to have all kinds of weird symptoms involving being cold on one place in his body and hot on another. I literally put my hands on him and felt cold and hot on the same body in the Florida sunshine. I mean, it was just freaky what was going on in his life. He looked from doctor to doctor. He's back in the United States by now. He finds a doctor who diagnoses him with something called dysautonomia. His autonomic nervous system had gone haywire. The cure for it is a muscle relaxant that puts the person in a deep REM sleep. He's to take it for one solid year. Now, who knows what's going to come of taking that for a whole year, but he'll deal with that when he comes to it. However, it has cured his dysautonomia. But guess what? Guess what benzodiazepines do to your sleep? They disrupt. You don't know it because they conk you out. You're sleeping great, you think, but they disrupt. REM sleep, so he had been deprived of REM sleep, and that's what happened to his autonomic nervous system, and the cure was, of course, REM sleep. So this just gives you an idea of how things can get terribly compounded because of inappropriate prescribing of psychotropic medication. Quote from Consumer Reports, during the past decade, the biggest change has been the dramatic shift from talk therapy to drug therapy for mental health problems. In 1995, less than half of people getting mental health treatment, 40%, got drug therapy. Now 68% get drug treatment, and 80% of those treated for depression and anxiety get drug treatment. So let's talk about the pros and the cons, or the benefits and the risks of talk versus drug therapy. Combination is the best 
for treatment, or the most reliable, I should say, for the treatment of depression and anxiety. Talk treatment worked almost as well with 13 plus sessions. So talk therapy tends to take longer than drug therapy, but it works almost as well, at least in this particular study. Drug therapy is also effective. The drugs work faster, but require more trial and error. And getting the right antidepressant, for instance, for a person can be like Russian roulette. People are different, and their bodies respond differently to different drugs. So it can often be a process. The side effects are much more common than labels suggest. 40% of patients experienced a loss of sexual function. 20% said they gained weight. Treatment from primary care physicians work for mild problems, but treatment from primary care physicians is less effective for severe problems. So that's just some research on talk versus drug therapy. What I do with my clients is very simple. They come presenting with anxiety or depression or some other mental illness, and unless it's endangering them, I encourage them as a first line of treatment to try some of the natural um, supplements. For instance, I've had good success with SAMe. I don't have as much experience with St. John's wort. I've heard more problems involving St. John's wort, so I've kind of veered away from that, but SAMe has been effective for me, um, for my daughter, and for a number of other clients. So that's the kind of thing I will pursue with them initially. There's also some things like tryptophan, 5-HTP, which are the building blocks of serotonin and the other neurotransmitters. So sometimes if you furnish your body with the building blocks, your body will make its own successfully. Of course, I always say, check with your primary care physician before you take any of these things, because I'm not allowed to prescribe. But I'd much rather have them try something mild, something nutritional, something herbal, because I find that those things have fewer side effects, not no side effects, but fewer side effects. And then, of course, I coach them in lifestyle changes. One of the most powerful medicines that I know of is exposure to sunlight. I heard from Nedley, get up early within 20 minutes of arising, get outside in the bright sunlight. I've been doing it ever since, and I've prescribed that to clients, and I've had clients that could not lick their depression do that one thing and just just recover. So that can be at times very, very powerful. So I coach them in those kind of changes. And I really prefer to do that. There are cases where I think it's necessary for at least a short time for that person to be on medication. So I will sometimes encourage them to go in that direction. But I like to avoid that if possible. That's where I stand on it. Um, and I'm sure you'll have something to say to me about it maybe. Um, okay, let's look at our third section here, biopsychosocial, spiritual. How can spiritual resources aid in the recovery from illness? Let's talk about some mental illnesses with a biological basis, depression and anxiety, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, Wolfram syndrome, which is genetically transmitted, causes neurological problems such as hearing loss, depression, violent behavior, and panic, hallucinations. It's a, it's a genetic thing. Hemochromatosis, Wilson's disease, Klinefelter syndrome, thyroid disease, mitochondrial DNA problems having to do with the battery of the cell. So all of those biological conditions can cause mental illnesses. Here's some signs of medically induced psychological symptoms. Treatment resistance, like these are the things I look for that, that indicate to me that maybe this person has something medical going on. Treatment resistance, the absence of family history of mental illness, late onset of initial presentation, rapid onset of symptoms, 
an atypical presentation, unusual sleep patterns, sorry, spelled that wrong, unusual eating patterns, motor system abnormalities, substance abuse, medication supplements and chemicals, like in other words, if they're on medication supplements and chemicals, maybe those are contributing to the problem. Recent remodel, move or travel, exposure to chemicals can cause mental health issues. Other exposure to toxins, socioeconomic status, do people in more poverty tend to have more men mental health issues because of poor nutrition and so forth. Abnormal vital signs, smoking, caffeine. By the way, I encourage my clients to get off all caffeine, not because of Ellen White, because of medical science. There's much um, support in the research for people, particularly people with anxiety and depression, getting off caffeine or, or really, really reducing the amount of caffeine. So I'm, I say that very unashamedly and not being an Ellen White fanatic or hitting people over the head with Ellen White at all. I'm just telling them, don't mess your, with your nervous system. It's already having trouble functioning. Let's talk a little bit about religion and brain structure. This is so interesting to me. This is William Mattison. He says, research shows that religiosity is correlated with brain structure. Research also shows that in general, people with well-developed religious beliefs tend to be healthier than those who are not, while hyper-religiosity -religi is sometimes tied to mental problems, particularly seizures, depression, mania, paranoia, and psychosis. Same thing is true of Domestic violence, by the way. Mainstream Christians tend to have less extreme forms of Christianity, fundamentalist forms of all religions tend to apparently engender or at least correlate with domestic abuse. And here you have um, mental health correlated with religious beliefs, but when people become hyper-religious or fanatical is another word for that, they tend to have more mental health issues. Exactly. We don't know. Correlation does not equal causality, so we can't draw too much of a conclusion from that. But we can, we can see that it's hinted at that fanatical religious experience will not help you. <laughs> and perhaps if you are sick to begin with, you're more inclined to be fanatical. And they tend to feed off one another in most cases. This is from Mind, Character, and Personality. Read it with me. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Infidels have made the most of these. Oh, did I already read this? Did I read this already? Okay, let's keep reading. Infidels have made the most of these unfortunate cases, attributing insanity to religion. But this is a gross libel. The religion of Christ, so far from being the cause of insanity, is one of its most effectual remedies, for it is a potent soother of the nerves. I want to share with you some scientific research that shows a correlation between church and mental health mediated by social connections. I'm just going to fly through these because I'm sure I'm close to my end time here. But let me just share with you, there are reams of research on the mental health benefits of church attendance and involvement. It's truly stunning. I, I would go so far as to say that church, with all of its flaws, is a mental health institution in many regards. Now, we know that there are churches that will send people to the insane asylum, right? <laughs> and I tell people, you know, if you're in an unhealthy church, then go to another church. There's usually something close enough where you can go somewhere else to church. And if you find that church has all kinds of problems that you can't cope with, then try a third church. And on the third church, if that church has all kinds of problems, then you're probably the problem. <laughs> so 
Anyway, this study was done on women, and it was found that church attendance was associated with fewer depressive symptoms and better general health, even controlling for sociodemographic variables. This study showed that mothers' involvement in church helped prevent uh, mental health problems in their teenagers, even if the teenagers weren't involved. I thought that was kind of amazing. This study was done on Latinos, and it found that church attendance seemed to support healthier dietary and physical activity behaviors. And not surprisingly, this study showed that young people involved in church engage in fewer risky behaviors such as extramarital sex, drugs, and alcohol. This study I love on the elderly, and it showed that the quality of connection, can I say it that way, at church is more beneficial to the elderly than the same quantity of social connection in a non-church sphere, because they measured those two against each other, and they found that they did better in terms of mental health and lowered stress involving finances if they were in a church context. This study showed that the elderly um, benefit from church not because they are served by others, because, but because they have opportunities to serve. You know, that's what I love about my church. You can get as old as you want. You can still be of benefit. Because even if you're like healing over or bedridden, you can pray for people. We have a lady in our church. She is a piece of history. She marched with Martin Luther King. Her name is Vashti. She, she went from this tall to about this tall in the last few years. She's all bent over, aches everywhere. She's not going to be around much longer. But she's precious. And I love her. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade her for anything, you know? So praise God, church gives people like her an opportunity to get up and share and, and bless others. And I love that about church. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.